Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. There are many, many pilots overseas, and, and I can tell you this from personal experience, that will go from point A to point B and not really care why you're going or, or who you are. This is Stephen Rombaum. You've heard him before. He's the private investigator who specializes in catching people who fake their deaths. I asked him where people who successfully fake their deaths usually hide, and where Gerald Cotton might be if he were still alive. So what is the ideal location? Where, where do you want to go? Well, you start with where you can't go. You can't go to any Western country unless you go through the back door of Europe you know, going through Croatia to Italy to wherever. But you got to you gotta be a pretty brave, competent guy. So Western Europe is out. Eastern Europe sucks. Are you going where you've stashed money? You're not going to stay in the place where your money is because you don't want to pinpoint it. You're not going to stay in the place where you faked your death. Uh, and you're not going to stay in the place where your passport is from. So pretty much anywhere else, uh, you can live quite nicely in, oh God, I don't know, uh, New Zealand. You can live incredibly well in Hong Kong. You know, I personally would pick Hong Kong. All right. So let's say you pick Hong Kong, maybe Thailand. Thailand is a very good one. So you get where you're going. You've got your cash, get your new identity. Have you pre-rented an apartment or do you stay in hotels? Uh, no, <laughs> you certainly do not stay in hotels because if you're in a hotel, you are, you are dependent on other people for food, for laundry. People are coming into your room and it's not your place. If the police suddenly have a light bulb light up over their head and they want to get in, they don't need a warrant. They, they just get a, a master key. Um, you know, it's not your property. Not only do you have an apartment, but you have an apartment with a very large, well-stocked refrigerator. And in the case of Gerald Cotton, you have all your medicine lined up. You have a cooperative doctor. Um, I don't think that he was faking having Crohn's disease. Okay, so you're in this extremely well-stocked room. Do you avoid going outside too much? Me personally? Well, I mean, I'd be watching YouTube for two months, basically. Um, and the news, I should add. And following the story online, probably. Well, you know, that's, that's a problem. Because there's all these cyber traps that are set up. You know, who's checking, who's checking this, uh, this website from northern India you know, tracking Gerald Cotton, who's logging in four times a day from northern India, and what's the IP address? It's now been more than two years since Quadriga CEO Gerald Cotton died, allegedly, on his honeymoon in India. And 
Let's get this out of the way. If Jerry had been found sipping a Mai Tai on a beach somewhere, you'd have heard about it by now. So that means he's either following Stephen Roundbaum's advice and laying low, or he's really dead. In this episode, we're going to put the story of Jerry's death under the microscope. We're going to follow the path his body took, from a hospital in Jaipur all the way to its final resting place in a Halifax cemetery. I'm Aaron Lammer. Welcome to Exit Scam, a podcast about a mysterious death and a missing fortune. This is part six, The Coffin. All the way back in episode one, I told you the official story of Jerry's death. Here's the short version. In the fall of 2018, Jerry and his wife Jen went to India on a combination honeymoon slash humanitarian mission to open an orphanage. But a week into the trip, Jerry got a stomach ache. It was his Crohn's disease flaring up. So he went to the hospital and he died. And then Jen flew his coffin home to Halifax for a closed casket funeral and burial. But in the months that followed, we learned some things that made us suspicious of that official story. First, we learned that Jerry signed a will just three days before he left for India. Then we learned that Jerry had embezzled hundreds of millions of dollars from his Bitcoin exchange. And if he hadn't died, he probably would have gotten caught and thrown in prison. And then we learned that Jerry was a serial scam artist with a 15-year history of ripping people off and disappearing. So pretty soon, it seemed only logical that Jerry faked his death. He didn't want to go to jail, so he ran away to India and bought a death certificate and a dead body to pass off as his own. He paid a doctor to lie and say he died of Crohn's disease, which was plausible because he really had it. And he sprung for an orphanage so he'd be remembered as a good person. If anybody could fake their death, it was Jerry. It seemed like he'd been preparing for years. Everything about his life looked like a dress rehearsal for a dramatic escape. For example, he could drive boats and fly small planes, two great ways for a fugitive to cross borders without stopping at customs. And maybe all those vacations he and Jen took were just a ruse to stash money around the world so he could pick it up later. But every once in a while, I have to stop and ask myself, is some of this just wishful thinking? Do I really believe that Jerry faked his death, or do I just want to believe it? I'll admit, the possibility that he might still be alive was one of the first things that drew me to Jerry's story. And over the past two years, I've become so invested in his story that I almost don't want it to end. And I'm not the only one. Jerry's customers want him to be alive, too. Even though he stole from them and they hate his guts, their only hope for getting their money back is if he's found somewhere with his stash intact. But now it's time to put those feelings aside and look at the evidence. Did you know that parents rank financial literacy as the number one most difficult life skill to teach? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app for families. 
With Greenlight, you send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and keep an eye on your kids' spending with real-time notifications. Kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. And parents can rest easy knowing their kids are learning about money with guardrails in place. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Luckily for us, Jerry wasn't cremated. He was buried. Jen could have told everyone she threw his ashes in the Ganges, and if she had, the only thing to go on would be her word. But Jerry's body allegedly traveled all the way from a hospital in Jaipur to a cemetery in Halifax. So we decided to follow its 7,000-mile path. We're going to go in reverse order and start at the end in Canada. Now, when I first started investigating Jerry, I was skeptical of the fake death theory. I thought it would be easy to disprove, because I assume there must be some Canadian law that requires dead bodies shipped from abroad to be identified, maybe even fingerprinted. But it turns out there's not. We contacted Canadian border services, and they told us their agents don't verify bodies' identities at customs. As long as a coffin is hermetically sealed, accompanied by a valid death certificate, and is not part of any criminal investigation, they leave it shut, send it on its way. For Jerry, this would have been no problem. He had an Indian death certificate, and when his coffin went through Canadian customs in December 2018, nobody had any reason to believe he wasn't in it, or that there was anything unusual at all about his death. So then I thought, What about Jerry's funeral home? I figured there must be a law to prevent them from burying a misidentified body coming from abroad. But again, I figured wrong, because it turns out there's not. We called the Nova Scotia Board of Registration of Embalmers and Funeral Directors, and it turns out that if all the paperwork is in order and the person delivering the body says they're satisfied as to its identity, Funeral homes aren't required to collect any fingerprints or DNA before burial. If a body arrives in a sealed casket, they might just leave it shut. So, in theory, Jerry could have sent someone else's body, or even a bunch of rocks, back to Canada for burial. All of his documents were in order, so there was no legal obligation for anybody to open his coffin. That means if we want to know what's really in Jerry's casket, we need to go back to where it was packed, India. 
We'd originally planned to go to India ourselves and retrace Jerry's steps. We were going to buy our own death certificates and see if we could find a doctor who would write us phony medical reports confirming we died. But then COVID happened and traveling became impossible. So we did the next best thing. We called a reporter who went to India in February 2019, a few weeks after Jerry's death had been announced. His name is Nathan Vanderclip, and he's a writer for Canada's Globe and Mail newspaper. We knew a couple of the bare outlines, which was that there was a Canadian who had died in India. Uh, there was a partially blacked out copy of a death certificate that had been circulating online. There was an image that it was also circulating online of a, an orphanage with his and his wife's name on it in India. And there was, of course, a whole lot of questions about what had happened to him and if, in fact, he was really dead. So effectively, the assignment was find out what you can. Nathan is based in Beijing, but his editors asked him to fly to Jaipur, basically to try to figure out whether Jerry had faked his death. So what did you do first? So the first thing I wanted to do was just to kind of follow what I had. And what I had was this blacked out copy of the death certificate. And one of the questions I had was to try to ascertain whether that was real or not. So my first objective was to go to find the registry office that may have processed that and to get a sense of whether that was a genuine document. So how did you do that? Where did, where did you go? I ended up coming into this small office on a crowded street in Jaipur. And I said, you know, here's what I have. I just wanted to check if this is what it was. And, and the next thing I know, they, they invited me back around and I was watching them on the computer in the system as they typed in Gerald Cotton's name. And then push of a button and there was the full death certificate on the screen. It included things like uh, the address where he had been staying at the time of his death, which was a good bit of confirmation because it allowed me to find out where he had been staying, which hotel. It included things like uh, the names of his parents, which was further confirmation uh, that this was a death certificate about him. And uh, then they printed off a copy. And so then I at least knew that the copy that had been circulating online masked exactly with the copy that was in the system and that, in fact, there was a legitimate death certificate that had been generated in India. And I suppose you could ask a question of, well, is it possible that somebody had, some someone corrupt had gotten into the system and had created a falsified death certificate? And I suppose that would be possible. But it, uh, at least, at the very least, I could say I felt quite definitively that the death certificate that had been generated was a death certificate that had come from the actual system in India. Okay, so what was your next move after that? So I think my next move was to actually to speak with uh, police. I ended up speaking with two different officers. One was an officer at a local police office, the office that had been tasked with producing a no-objection certificate. If you, as a foreigner, die in India 
and there is a desire to take the body out of the country, the police must first issue this no objection certificate, which is basically to say that this body is not the subject of an investigation and it is free to leave the country because we have no investigative interest in it as the police. And so I spoke with the officer who had generated that. And then later I ended up speaking with uh, the chief police officer for the city. And where did you go from there? Well, <clears throat> I mean, so that night I, I ended up going to the Oberoi Rajvillas Hotel, more of a resort, really. And, and that's where Jerry and Jennifer had been staying and uh, on their honeymoon. What, what was it like? I mean, I, to be honest, I expected this to be a hotel. And then I arrived there and it appeared to have a guarded gate. I came by tuk-tuk, looking a bit sweaty as one does after a day on the streets of, uh, of an, a city in India, and walked in, which seemed to be an unusual way to approach. It seemed to be very much designed for people to be whisked in on, in cars. And, uh, and I just walked into the front door and I was welcomed by staff who had, you know, these cooled towels, flutes of sandalwood, rose water infusion. And it was clear that this was just a kind of a, a place apart. And, um, and, and so I just asked to speak with the manager of the hotel and waited for, for him to arrive. And when he did, I asked him some questions. And of course, he was not particularly forthcoming about what had happened to Jerry Cotton, but he did confirm that, yes, they had had a Canadian person here who had had medical, uh, some medical distress, and that was all very unfortunate what had happened. Moving from the hotel, um, what was the next thing you felt like you needed to, to check out? So from there, what I really wanted to do was to speak with the doctor who had treated Jerry. I had also obtained a, a more detailed copy of the medical report on his death, uh, which was signed by a doctor. And that doctor was Dr. Giant Sharma. And, and I wanted to speak with Dr. Sharma because I was, I was curious about what had happened. So Jerry died at uh, Fortis Escorts Hospital, which is a fancy private hospital. What happened when you went there? It didn't seem as if I was going to be very likely to enter the hospital itself. Uh, there was security and there were other things. And I wasn't, and the hospital had already put out a statement and I wasn't certain that I was going to be able to get much more from the hospital. So, but I discovered that Dr. Sharma had his own private clinic. And so I just went to the clinic and asked when his next hours were. And then when, when the time came, I returned and sat in the waiting room. Then Dr. Sharma showed up and breezed by into his office. And then I came in and I walked in and picked up his prescription pad and said, what can I, what can I get for you? And I said, well, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not looking for medicine. I'm, I'm looking for some information. And so we sat down and chatted for a bit. And he described to me as, as best he could uh, his recollections of what had happened a few months earlier. And, and those recollections were, uh, were, were, were quite Quite vivid, it seemed. It seemed like this was a, a case that had that had stuck with him. What did he remember about the case? I just kind of went through the process with with Dr. Sharma, trying to get a sense of what had taken place. And he said that uh, Jerry had been admitted with 
what he called symptoms of acute gastroenteritis. When he was admitted, he was stable, pulse was okay, blood pressure was okay, but he had, uh, Jerry had loose stools and had, had, had a history of vomiting. Dr. Shermer said he hadn't seen Jerry vomit himself, but that had been the history. Um, and so he was stable, but um, out of precaution, they suggested he spend the night in the hospital. And the initial sort of assessment was that Jerry was experiencing relatively standard traveler's diarrhea, which is quite common for people when they, when they travel to India, when their system isn't accustomed to the different bugs floating around India, that people get traveler's diarrhea. And so that was the initial assumption that, that this is what Jerry was suffering from, just because some of his symptoms matched up with what you would expect uh, when you get sick on the road. What did the doctor believe about why Jerry died? His conclusion, which was the same conclusion that was in the medical report, was that the immediate cause of death was cardiac arrest. Jerry had had two episodes of cardiac arrest that they had managed to resuscitate him from, and then a third in which they had not. But that the that the the, the fundamental, the underlying cause was. Uh, a perforation, this idea that, uh, that that Jerry's intestine had perforated and leaked and caused sepsis, and that had led to his death. When you got the medical records uh, from the hospital and spoke to the doctor, did any of these things require permission from Jerry's family? And was that something that you sought at all? <laughs> Here's what I can say. I was, it was remarkable how willing people were to share details of what had taken place. I found that surprising. It's not what you would expect to find in Canada, and it was certainly not what you would expect to find uh, in China, where I do a lot of my reporting. Tracing from the hospital uh, forward, where was the next place you felt like you need, needed to to check on on that trail. So from from there, what I wanted to know was what had happened to the body, which was a way, I guess, of of trying to just to determine the the process, uh, but also to get a sense of, you know, was there a body? And so I set out to try to find the place where the body had been embalmed. We had a sense that the body had been had been taken uh, to Canada and, and to prepare a body for for flight and for moving for several days. And it needs first to be embalmed. And I didn't know exactly where that had been done, but I had gotten the names of a couple of different embalmers that were likely to be involved in a case like this. And so I just hit the road and decided to see what I could find. And uh, where did that road take you? Uh, the, f- the first place was a place called Mahatma Gandhi Medical College and Hospital, which is you know a large hospital complex. And I walked into the main area, which was kind of teeming with people, and uh, asked where the um, where where, <laughs> where where I guess where the bodies were embalmed would be embalmed. And knocked and looked in, and there was a woman inside, a doctor named Simi Mera. And I asked her uh, if she recalled a the body of a Canadian coming through. And she immediately said, yes, I was asked to embalm as a body, and I refused. 
At which point, of course, given all of the many questions about this case, kind of the hair on the back of my neck stood up and I was like, well, why? And for her, the question was, it was complicated, but it was a strange set of circumstances. Which she, the word she used was that she felt it was fishy. And it was in part because it seemed as if the people handling this body were people associated not with the hospital itself, but with the hotel. And she had gotten an inquiry about whether she can embalm a body, and the person on the other end could not give her very specific details on why there was a body, on why this person had died. And because it was associated with a hotel and not a hospital, uh, her sort of spidey senses went off that perhaps there was something off here. And she said this was based in part on her own experiences. She worked in a private clinic um, and offering a private service. And she said, sometimes bodies would show up for embalming that showed obvious signs of foul play. She referred to the body of a soldier who had come in and was bruised down to the feet. And it seemed as if perhaps somebody had been beaten or tortured and perhaps there was an effort in getting that body embalmed by her office to hide what had taken place. And so she was very sensitive to that. So anything that sort of fell outside of what was normal, she was very sensitive to. And in this case, she rejected it. She said, I, I, I'm not going to deal with this. I want to pause Nathan here for a second and say that from what we've heard, it's a point of pride for resorts like the Oberoi to attend to the needs of their Western guests. If this embalmer felt like it was suspicious for Oberoi employees to be driving around a body, I can't argue with that. But it's not unheard of for a five-star hotel in India to help out in a medical emergency. So what happens after um, this embalmer says no? Well, for me, what happened was I wanted to find out where the body had actually been embalmed. So I went to... I went to a different place, the second place on my list, which is a place called SMS Medical College. And kind of I walked in looking for the anatomy department. I, I ended up speaking with a number of people there and getting permission from the college to examine the embalming records. And those embalming records included um, copies of, of Jerry's passport. They included... Uh, records of who had dropped off the body and who had picked it up as long as well as the driver's license number for those people um, and phone number for those people. Uh, I called that phone number and it ended up being uh, for the security office of the Oberoi Rejvilles, which confirmed to me that it was in fact personnel from the hotel who were moving around this body. And there were timestamps in terms of when this had taken place. So it all, all of those records seemed to comport with what you would expect to find in, uh, in, in the embalming of a body. Was there any confirmation um, beyond uh, that uh, the passport and, and the Oberoi, but that the person that had been embalmed there physically resembled Gerald Cotton? No. So the, the closest I got to that was when I, when I spoke to Dr. Sharma, one of the things I did was I pulled up a couple of photos of Jerry Cotton. 
on my phone and I showed those to him and I said, is this the man you treat? And he said, yes, that's the man I treated. So, um, so that was that. I, I, at the embalmers, I, I, I examined the records. I, I spoke with some of the senior staff at the college um, who, of course, were, were very convinced that, uh, that everything had taken place normally. <laughs> one, one of the doctors there said, oh, he's dead, she told me. Um, but, uh, but I didn't actually speak with the, the junior technician who had done the embalming, in, uh, the embalming itself. Did any of the people you interacted with at the embalmers or the hotel or the police, did anyone give any credence to the idea that Jerry might have actually faked his death? Did people take it seriously? I, I couldn't find in my reporting any evidence that pointed to a falsified death. I could find fair bits of evidence that pointed to a natural death or a death as it was described. But I couldn't see any evidence that pointed the other way. One of the questions that, of course, we can't answer because there was no post-mortem done was, was there foul play involved in the death? But what we do know is that he had Crohn's disease. And what we do know is that the progression of symptoms in terms of what took place, in terms of how he was feeling, in terms of a hardening of his abdomen before his death, in terms of the, the shocking speed with which everything took place, that those symptoms are, according to some of the medical professionals we spoke with are consistent with what could happen in the case of a perforation uh, of someone, even a young person who has Crohn's disease. So each of those things, I think, points in the direction of this being a natural death. If there was foul play, I don't think that's something that can be answered unless there is actually some examination of the body itself. And uh, that examination has not taken place. It certainly didn't take place in India. I wonder if you could tell me about what you found about what brought Jerry and Jen to India in the first place, um, the orphanage. Um, what did you learn sort of a, about their trip? Right. We, we knew that they had told other people that they were going to India to open an orphanage. And we also had seen photos that had circulated of a sort of a brightly painted small building and it had a sign on it that said it was in the Gerald Cotton and Jennifer Robertson orphanage. And it also had the name of a place, Venkatapuram in India. And so what I wanted to do at that point in time was to find out if that existed um, and if so, what it looked like. So that's, that's what I set out to do next. But that was Difficult because as I discovered the first time I typed in Venkatapuram into Google Maps, that there are a lot of places in India that are named Venkatapuram. And so I, at that point in time, I just kind of had to hope that luck would be on my side in terms of finding out which was the correct one. And, and as I looked at the map, I saw that there was one place called Venkatapuram, which was located quite close to Hyderabad, which was a short flight away. And I thought, well, maybe I'll start there. And so I just boarded a flight to Hyderabad and hired a car there, unsure of what I'd been able to find, but just hoping that I would get lucky. And what did you find? What I ended up finding through 
a series of, <laughs> I, I suppose, uh, fortunate events, was I ended up finding the orphanage. And the orphanage was located at the end of quite a long drive, and it was exactly as it was pictured. You know, the same bright colors, the same sign with Gerald Cotton and Jennifer Robertson's name on it, and children inside. It was, I arrived uh, when it was evening and uh, the lights were on and the kids were sitting there uh, doing their homework. As best I could tell, uh, it seemed to be quite a, a warm and uh, hospitable environment. Overall, everything you found in Jaipur, did it convince you uh, of the basic facts that, that you went in looking for? You know, it's interesting because you, you can still have a conversation about what took place and look at the signing of the will, look at the problems that seem to have been accruing for Quadriga, look at the amount of money that was at stake and look at all of those things and say it is a very difficult to believe coincidence that his death happened right at this exact moment. And I think it's very, very simple to sort of have those questions, which are very difficult to answer, and, and to have those really sort of plague you in terms of, you know, what actually took place. And is, is it actually possible for coincidence to work, to operate in this way? Is it actually possible for a 30-something man to, in the course of 24 hours, go from complaining about diarrhea to being dead. And so all of those things, I think, those, those questions, I, I don't know that those questions have gotten any less searching with time. But what I can say is in terms of what I was able to find in India, in terms of the people I was able to speak with, in terms of the documents I was able to gather, all of the evidence in those there were elements of this that people found strange, even after the fact, that they found odd, that they found perhaps even fishy, as, as this, this one embalmer said. But still, all of the pieces of evidence in that pointed to there having been a natural death here, or a death anyways, as opposed to this being faked. Did you look into... Indian death faking, how it works. Um, did Were there ever discussions you had with people about, has anyone ever pulled off something of this scale that would have involved multiple people lying? Yeah, and there had been, I think, a couple of reports about uh, deaths that were faked in India. And, and I had read those. Uh, but I, I should say, A, from the ones I read anyways, had taken place far, far away from uh, Jaipur. I, I ran this idea by, for example, the police, like, is, is this a known phenomenon in the area? And they, they laughed at that idea. They said no. Um, but I think it's, it's worth pointing out that, I mean, India is, of course, an enormous country. It may already be the world's most populous country. It's, it's large geographically. And the idea that there have been deaths fake there uh, in the course of time I don't think says anything about the prevalence of such a practice. I did, I did ask the question. I asked the question of just about everyone I met, actually. Is this a known phenomenon? Have you heard of this taking place in this area? And the people I spoke with anyways laughed it off.
So Nathan spoke directly to Jerry's doctor and to the clerks at the hotel where Jerry and Jen stayed and to the police officer who signed the no objection letter and to the employees at the medical college where Jerry's body was embalmed. And even though he barged into their offices without an appointment, they all agreed to talk and they all told him the same thing. Jerry's dead. But there's one more person who knows what really happened in India. And if Jerry faked his death, she wouldn't have just had to lie once or twice to a reporter. She would have had to carry that lie for the rest of her life. That person is Jerry's widow, Jennifer Robertson. And the next episode is about her. Where she was right there when he died, she knows who she went into the hospital with. She spent the nights in the room with him. If if he faked his death, uh, the, the possibility of her not being an active and willing participant is minuscule. You know, a group went back to the Fall River house after the funeral. Apparently there was there was a fight, you know, it was a fight between Jennifer and, and Jerry's parents and Jennifer essentially told them to get out. She said, I don't, you know, I don't need you anymore. I don't want you anymore. Get out of my house. Exit Scam is an original production of Treats Media. You can listen to next week's episode right now, exclusively on the new Odyssey app. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y. They've got all the podcasts you crave, plus the music, news, and sports that matter to you. Odyssey, download it for free today from the App Store or Google Play. Exit Scam was written and produced by me, Aaron Lammer, and Lane Brown. Mixing and additional editing by Martin D. Fowler. Show art and art direction by Mickey Duget. The theme song is by Francis and the Lights. And scoring from this episode was by Mark Allen Piccolo, Ross Simonini, Martin D. Fowler, Francis Starlight, and myself. Plus additional music from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Check them out. Their work is all over this show and we deeply appreciate it. Our executive producers are Max Linsky, Lane Brown, and myself. Additional sound editing and producing by James Nicholson. Additional producing by Jacqueline Scurry. Special thanks to Jake Schreier, and Garrett, Patty Greco, Jake Hang, Evan Ratliff, everyone over at Pineapple Street Studios, J.D. Crowley and everyone at Odyssey, Lizzie Denahan, everyone at Cadence 13. We'll be back next week. <laughs>